least. So uh, at least for her unit, they got javelins and they did use them effectively, um, uh, particularly javelins. I don't know if they got other gear. And everybody is training on them, including her. So everybody is training, and when they have downtime, they train on them, and she knows how to use it. I don't know for sure if she used it in combat. She said that she will tell me all these stories later, uh, because obviously it's not only about security, but it's also about... Um, um, I mean, this is on a personal note. She's going through incredible trauma. Uh, all of them are, all of them on the line that they will be processing for the rest of their lives. And there are things they just don't want to talk about, not necessarily for security, just on an emotional level. It's hard to relay it to someone being in a safe place. But yes, they are training on javelins and I think from if you just look at Oryx's page or uh, any other tracker of Russian equipment losses, it's pretty clear that they know how to use it. And uh, yeah, that was the only comment. And she knows how to use it as well, even if she's a medic. Adrian, quick question. How many of the uh, G42s do they still have? Or is it just a singular thing? Uh, I think it was just like a single thing. You know, I think maybe it was in a Ukrainian warehouse somewhere. I have no clue. I didn't ask the details. But it, it, the mix was like she sent me some pictures and the, the mix was pretty eclectic. So they had uh, most of them have AK-74s as, uh, you know, their weapon. But uh, yeah, the um, uh, machine guns seem to be whatever they can get. I didn't see a Maxim gun yet, thank God. But uh, the, it seemed to be just one uh, MG42. And I don't know if it's uh, calibered for uh, 8mm Mauser, which was the German standard, or if it's rechambered in something uh, more accessible. But uh, getting proper ammo for uh, getting enough ammo was a complaint, for sure. Well, if they had more than one... I think we would be able to help, but uh, okay. I can ask. It, it's a fan, it's a fantastic piece of kit, and it has, uh, because of its simplicity and functionality, has stood the test of time. Sounds scary too. I, I I must say, gentlemen, that uh, my time to actually sleep, which turns out I do once in a while, has come. Axel, pleasure seeing with you. I will catch up with you after I have rested a bit. See you on the flip side, mate. Thank you, Finance. You do a great job as a host. Always nice to hear you here. Good night. Axel, can you co-host with me? I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, mate. Of course. So if anyone wants to come up and talk about any of the subjects we've been talking about recently, or if you have any new piece of uh, news relevant to Ukraine, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Just uh, request to come speak and uh, raise your hand. Joseph, I have a, had a little anecdotal comment about this soil thing and the tradition of uh, farming. Uh, when I was in Ukraine, yeah, when I was in Ukraine, I met a couple of elderly people and grandparents of friends who were still stockpiling food. In, so they would buy food from the supermarket or whatever, from the garden, but they would always have a sack of potatoes or some rice or something in their basements just because they remember the, well, only one of them was old enough to remember the Holodomor, but from their parents, they remembered the scarcity of food. So it's deeply ingrained in, uh, at least in Ukrainian rural, uh, rural uh, it's really hard to pronounce this word, culture, village culture, that uh, you need to hide some food away because uh, the Russians <laughs> might come and uh, make you starve again. So it's horrible, but... Um, tied to the agricultural tradition, this is something that is deeply inculcated in uh, Ukrainian, in the Ukrainian mindset. 
at least in the villages. Yeah, and it's it's definitely good they maintain that cultural memory because now there are Russians stealing their grain and trying to ship it to Syria to make money to fund an illegal war to genocide them, right? History, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, huh? It's horrible how much it echoes. It's horrible how much it echoes, and it's been only 90 years. Yeah. And on that happy note, <laughs> the funny thing is we have, still have Ryan as a listener. Uh, as a few people here know, Ryan's family originally uh, has also linkages to an area where German settlers were brought into ages ago, meaning hundreds of years ago by um, some Russian king who needed more farmers. And to, uh, this is in the area of Shitomir, where both um, Jews and Germans uh, from uh, that time lived together up until they both ended up in Russian pogroms. And then they had to leave Volhynin, meaning the area surrounding Shitomir, where there were farmers, carpenters, butchers, you know, and candles. Let's hope that they, this time around, can just not reclaim their land, but free it from Russian power. Full. Axel, can I ask you something? Um, sure. Yeah. Always. I, uh, uh, I've been watching this, uh, to change the topic a little bit, I've been watching this uh, whole tassel around uh, Lithuania banning, uh, uh, basically restriction the transit of Russian goods uh, um, through its territory to Königsberg. And... Uh, of course, it's the time of the morning to get angry at Mr. Schultz for uh, for doing or saying something stupid. And I've seen that uh, the European Commission is trying to pressure Lithuania to uh, basically allow this transit, not to escalate. I mean, that seems so stupid. Any comments? Yeah, it, it's difficult to say, actually, uh, because uh, it's, a, it's a Reuters report. So Reuters came out with the news yesterday. Supposedly, some commission members uh, were trying to pressure Lithuania with and supposedly with German support. Now, um, the funny part is that the Lithuanians are essentially only prosecuting what are the existing sanctions. And they're taking them seriously because these are sanctions which the European Commission has literally for all its members sanctioned meaning supported if not quite demanded so whoever came up with that line uh, be it at reuters or be it at the commission or be it at someone uh, or be it someone of german descent in the area of the commission is uh, trying to um i don't know score political points i can't judge i can't really judge and uh, i cannot really trace the rumor much further what is true is that Lithuania is simply doing, um, and but methodically, what it has been originally asked to do, and it is has this fine balance to uh, address um, between um, honouring the existing agreement as to the uh, transportation corridors, which, by the way, the last version, which was supposed to be renegotiated. Um, is still in dispute as, a, well, as to whether it has been um, formally executed. But there is an existing agreement preceding it, um, which requires that Lithuania allows transport into the enclave and uh, that it allows transport for um, 
Russian Federation, but it specifically excludes, specifically excludes both, now it comes, illegal goods, meaning contraband and the likes, and it technically is allowed to sample, and arms. Now, what do you think has been declared by the Russians initially? Was it food or was it something else? And if it was food, where did it come from? So it's a bit of a complicated situation, but Lithuania obviously is also making a stand, and that is a political motion, uh, because Lithuania on the one hand has the German contingent in uh, Lithuania and Germany within the NATO uh, coverage for the region has Germany on site. Mr. Scholz recently was there in order to express the commitment of the nation he is supposed to lead uh, to Lithuania. And the Lithuanians themselves want to make sure that they are unabashed fight for freedom and uh, is taken and, and uh, shall we say, against oppression and against the Russian bear is well heard. So they are calibrating the message on a regular basis. And when they're tightening the screws as now, this is completely within their rights and actually in compliance with requirements. So that's how careful one should word it. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this brought me with the thought to another thing. Um, whether it's uh, true or not, is uh, uh, one of my major fears is that as time goes on, uh, some of the flakier members of the EU will try to lift some of the sanctions. And uh, I'm wondering, um, because I don't know how the EU works that well, are the sanctions package, uh, the lifting of the sub sanctions package is also uh, supposed to go to a vote and can be stopped by a veto, correct? So if that is true, like we shouldn't worry that the sanctions will be lifted anytime soon because I doubt the Baltics or Poland would uh, not veto any proposal like that. Well, the way the sanctions were introduced uh, was on the basis of the unanimity of sanctions. Um, and as such, it uh, whilst there is technically a mechanism that the sanctions can be rescinded, um, for example, for emergency reasons. So, for example, if you... If if the other um, country were to lose its leader, let's assume, let's create an artificial solution, but it's important. If Putin were to, for example, lose power, okay, imagine he fades away, is overthrown. Russia is in a state of upheaval, three different factions fighting each other. One of these factions um, hasn't quite attained power, but requires emergency help, for example, for food, for fuel, you name it, anything, something which we can get, the Adam Smith widget. Would we deny them the widget if it's evident that they need help in order to, say, secure power for a more democratic transition, yes or no? In such case, an emergency relief action can be filed. You would probably even find unanimous support normally, but it could be, now take this artificial case, that, for example, Viktor Orban would say, no, because I don't want you to support that one faction, or I don't want you to support these people. Could that unanimity rule then be rescinded? Yes, it could. There is a technical option for that. So should we be worried about the sanctions being rescinded? I don't think so. Yes, the three large nations who may have an interest which overrides matters, meaning Germany, France and Italy, may pressure smaller members, but as you quite rightly said, 
um, the Baltics, Poland, Finland, um, I'd say Romania, I would say are very unlikely to ever allow that to occur unless they would uh, be convinced that uh, Russia's capacity to attack and the threat, therefore, has been degraded. And uh, so in that regard, I, I tend to agree with your view onto that side, but technically there are possibilities. I know it sounds boring and complicated, but it is. No, but it makes sense. And boring and complicated matters in this case because um, uh, we spoke a lot of, a lot here about uh, many voices uh, saying that sanctions not, don't work, but uh, it's a long-term thing and it's a long-term process. And for them to fully work, for the effect to be seen even for the idiots who can deny them, it's for them to last for months, years, maybe. So um, boring and complicated is important because people get bored. And uh, yeah, it's a bit uh, scary that uh, some nations might get flaky on it. So uh, it needs to be explained and it needs to be restated that these sanctions need to stay for as long as, uh, well, for as long as Russia is Russia and doing what he's doing in Ukraine. Yeah, okay, thanks. guys, so I'm going to jump in here real quick and say we've got uh, two Ukrainian speakers as guests uh, right now. Uh, we have uh, our friend Both. of the show, uh, Slava Ukraini, uh, who's a frequent listener, and, of course, uh, Operator Starsky, who is a press officer with the Ukrainian Army, uh, has a YouTube channel, a uh, great channel. Uh, I recommend all of our listeners subscribe. Uh, so uh, just out of pure decorum, I'm going to let Slava go first, and then uh, we'll let uh, Operator Starsky uh, uh, go ahead and speak. Uh, so go ahead, uh, Slava. Slava Ukraini. Herman Slava, uh, Axel, Smertvorohan, Ukraina Ponadusa. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, hello, Adrian. Hello, Axel. Hello, everyone who listens. Uh, I didn't see Operator Starsky. I can easily wait, so I'm not, it's not a problem. I just wanted to update on the Ukraine, but Operator Starsky can go ahead. I can wait. Uh, thank you so much. So I, I just wanted to jump in real quick with, um, uh, like, re regarding the the sanctions. Uh, so yes, a lot of Russians uh, keep claiming that uh, sanctions don't work and stuff. There's a lot of uh, videos on the YouTube available for everybody uh, regarding that. For example, this channel called I Think Inside Russia. Uh, there's a Russian guy who just... Uh, interviews random people regarding this and uh, regarding the military aspect uh, recently we have received the information that uh, Russian Ural Wagons of Wood uh, their uh, biggest and uh, only <laughs> working factory uh, producing tanks uh, currently cannot uh, produce any more tanks and uh, they send their uh, employees on a vacation uh, because uh, they literally cannot uh, cannot do their job. They cannot do their duties because uh, this factory lacks parts from Europe and uh, other countries like China, for example. So uh, they cannot uh, build those tanks. And uh, that's uh, one of the reasons why we see those old tanks that are being brought uh, from storages uh, they they trying to uh, like resurrect those old uh, T sixty twos, and uh, it's 
possible i think it's possible uh, for russians to build new tanks but they will be new old tanks um and uh, in in a military aspect uh, this works i think we can say that this works uh it, it, as well as uh you know producing more uh missiles which they cannot do again because they cannot buy even those uh, gps modules um and uh, the, there was another uh, important thing i wanted to say ah so regarding the repay um as we know any uh artillery system we're talking about cannons and howitzers uh, they have a resource around uh, 500 shots maximum and after that they have to be repaired and uh if it, if it doesn't happen there there's a lot of different consequences and again because they uh lack uh parts and technologies from other countries they cannot do that so uh no matter what, what russian propagandists say but still um we can see that those sanctions uh start to work and uh yeah i think it's a, it's a good news for for all. yeah when this was first reported that uh so to say the engines in nizhny tagil had been shut down um there was still uh, seemingly a lot of russian propaganda going around for another month and, uh, until now that they would still at least be able to repair tanks but if even the repair of their t72b's is out of order that tells you that pretty much all the cnc machines uh, uh can't be updated any further which is a good notice because uh, this is from one specific company in germany um which uh probably has finally stopped programming them or uh, allowing them to be updated as well as the bearings they have and a number of valves which they can't produce so they seem to be running out and uh, starsky would be very happy if you would stay up and uh, join the discussion and of course uh, you know the space runs 24 hours a day we're always uh, updating everyone on uh, ukrainian news and uh, you're welcome anytime to just stop by and uh, give us your thoughts on anything but uh, i guess uh, you know maybe last time you you joined us uh, it was a, a little while ago so if uh, you maybe had any general updates uh, from your perspective on uh, what's been going on recently we'd love to hear uh it's not not so much uh, of news i mean um uh, we, we all know that uh, uh snake island is liberated and it's uh, there's a very funny back story because uh russian uh ideologist of this uh Rus- ruski mir ideology uh dugin uh on february 25th i think said that uh, th- there are those uh, ruins on uh, the snake island and um, those ancient ruins and he said that this is a sacred place and those who control uh, uh, the snake island will control the future of the black sea and yada yada and yeah and then they state that it was li- leaving the island was a sign of a good will Uh, it, it must be the source of the Ukrainian black magic they were talking about, right? 100%. I'm sure. I'm sure that uh, I think that uh, our battle geese infected with uh, virus arrived massively to this island. And uh, yeah, it, it turned all the Russian soldiers in, into frogs, which is plausible, I think. This is the specific Excalibur breed <laughs> of your geese, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um and uh, that very day uh KA52 was shot down uh 
in the area of Snake Island, from what I know, um, it's, it seems to me that uh, uh, Russians were literally desperate. And I can say that uh, the British Ministry of uh, Defense uh, in its report uh, confirms that pretty much that they had to leave the island because of our constant fire. Uh, of course, uh, the, another question is, what is the future of the Snake Island? I don't think that uh, we will have our troops stationed there uh, anytime soon. I cannot uh, say that it's 100% true because it's not my level of, you know, expertise, but uh, uh, I think we did very well in terms of eliminating their anti-air uh, measures that were located on the island. Uh, because now we have uh, a, I, I, I'd say that our aviation is now able to operate in that area uh, very well. Yeah, we went into a lot of detail uh, on, on this channel about uh, how, how many air system, anti-air systems they brought on the island. And certainly, yeah, it was, it was quite a few. Uh, but uh, I guess uh, in terms of other news, uh, maybe the uh, recent Tochka strikes on the ammunition depots and also the deployment of HIMARS. Do you have any thoughts on uh, the first HIMARS video? Uh, yeah, so uh, I <laughs> I can say that those missile strikes, uh, we, we are talking about uh, the, the videos that were published like a couple of days ago, right? Yeah, when, when they Correct. fired the first uh, double batch of uh, pods with, for the Gimblers. Yeah, so uh, we have destroyed uh, two command uh, headquarters. Uh, I, I think I'm... Uh, I think I'm right about it. Uh, we have destroyed two command uh, headquarters and uh, basically uh, all those increased missile attacks on Ukraine that we can see uh, during this week. Uh, I think it's probably the gesture of desperation from, from Russians because uh, we can see that they're targeting um, our civilian structures, uh, they have uh, recently uh, hit a civilian building in Odessa. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, HIMARS proves to be very, very effective because of its range, of course, and uh, why range is so important, obviously, because uh, they don't have, Russians don't have, uh, they cannot use their uh, counter-battery measures. Um, even I think their uragans and smirches are not effective at this range. Uh, so, yeah, we expect uh, a lot of those systems here in Ukraine. Uh, I think that after this NATO summit that uh, uh, we saw recently, uh, we will have an increasing number of those systems in Ukraine because we really need them and we see that uh, they... They are very efficient uh, when used by Ukrainian operators. Absolutely. And uh, I think I, I think the last time you were here, this hadn't happened yet, uh, a, a little uh, a drone managed to, to pass through Russian airspace and, and hit a refinery in, uh, I believe, Bel Belgorod, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't know. Uh, do, do you have maybe any information on that? Uh, we, we talked about it at length at the time, but, you know, there really wasn't a lot of information except for the video. Uh you have any thoughts about that uh, hit on the refinery? That was it was owned by a, an oligarch uh, with kind of some ties, right? It was a bit of a important strike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so whenever uh, something like that happens uh, on the uh, on the territory of Russia, we have a saying here in Ukraine. We say that uh, it was an unrecognized 
third party. So that that's my answer. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Axel, do you have any questions or comments for uh, Operator Star? Yeah, still, I mean, this goes into the direction of the, the HIMARS system. We now know that uh, a significant amount of HIMARS uh, capacity is being deployed. Uh, uh, the, shall we say, liberal use of the um, initial pods of Gimlas leads us to believe that there is significantly more missile uh, capacity coming. Um, we understand that the battle in Don Donbass is harsh and hard, but uh, how would you rate the chances of the Ukrainian armed forces um, to now utilize those HIMARS to, shall we say, open up front lines in the northeast and in the south? Um, I would say that uh, we should uh, continue exhausting Russian troops uh, on the first place because uh, we still don't have comparable number of artillery. Uh, we're talking not only about uh, long-range artillery as like HIMARS, uh, we, we're also talking about uh, harvesters and uh, infantry artillery um, and stuff like that. So we need more of that in order to be able to uh, uh, perform our uh, counter-offensive operations. And uh, before it happens, of course, we have to keep exhausting Russian troops uh, like we saw in the area of uh, Rubizhne and Severodonetsk uh, that were defended by my brigade. Um, I talked to my guys, and um, you probably remember uh, from the World War II when uh, German uh, machine gunners had this problem. Uh, they, they needed to attend psychologists because they, uh, they told that they killed so many uh, Soviet soldiers, like, during a day. Yes, and they kept coming and coming. Yeah, and uh, I talked to my guys, they have the same problem. So, uh, during our um, during our op uh, defensive operation in Severodonetsk, for example, um, according to our estimates, we have uh, killed 1,000 uh, Russian soldiers, um, about 1,200 of them were wounded, uh, Three, more than 300 uh, armored vehicles were destroyed, including tanks, BTRs, and uh, their BMPs. And uh, uh, that's uh, only the numbers that were brought by my brigade. Uh, and uh, we're talking about battalion tactical group. Uh, and that's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, so we keep that uh, tactic. And I think that uh, it's effective because, uh, again, they weren't able to move uh, deeper, to penetrate deeper into our uh, defense uh, in the area of Rubizhne and uh, Severodonetsk for like four months, even despite the fact that they brought uh, most of their uh, troops and concentrated them around that area. Uh, probably 50% of their uh, battalion tactical groups were located there, uh, including those that... Uh, retreated from uh, the area of uh, Kiev, Chernihiv, Sumy, um, partially Kharkiv, uh, partially uh, Kherson. So uh, I think that's an effective tactics, and we should keep doing that uh, before we will be able to launch a uh, full-scale counteroffensive.
You know, I'm I'm with you completely. And uh, whilst I'm not that old, but I can remember that soldiers had to go for um, um, support. Uh, everybody in Germany has heard these stories, and it's terrible. But that's conventional war for you. Uh, um, when you highlight that, uh, I mean, I was not advocating um, an immediate counteroffensive. I was more thinking about the level of pressure on, on command centers and supply depots, as we have seen already that long range artillery, artillery can make such changes. Um, how do you see the use of the uh, tank brigades the Ukrainians have been nurturing and uh, were also in the center there in Kramatorsk and Slovyansk, but uh, probably less of use at the moment. Will they be kept in the rear or do you see them being used tentatively as has been the case recently? Um, I, I, I want to briefly return to, to the previous question. Um, the biggest sure. difference be between Russian and uh, Ukrainian artillery is that uh, Russians still use that uh, tactic on firing on uh, firing on areas instead of firing on specific targets. While Ukrainians, because of uh, lack of uh, ammunition uh, for our artillery, 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we we have to use our artillery uh, for uh, conducting more precise fire on uh, important uh, commanders, uh, command centers, and supply lines, and uh, other uh, other uh, objects. Uh, that's why. Uh, we cannot use our artillery in order to shell their troops uh, pretty much because uh, we we cannot waste our ammunition on that and we we have to take that into account that uh why russians are uh, able to i mean why russians keep uh, taking such casualties is because they lack uh, experienced commanders because uh, a lot of them were eliminated and they still have that uh, old Soviet uh, officer school, let's call it this way, of planning. Uh, but uh, why they are still able to advance is because they have uh, those troops, the, the personnel, and uh, we can only use our artillery against personnel in minority of cases. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's the reason why it looks like this today. Um, as for our tanks, uh, I think they will be used, uh, of course, uh, in combination with uh, our infantry, because this is the way we're trained here in Ukraine. Uh, we don't simply throw our tanks in, in columns, right, like Russians did uh, in those first months of invasion. Um, we don't, don't just throw them uh, at uh, those objects that they need to eliminate. Uh, they will be used in combination with our uh, infantry as, uh, I would say, as a support uh, during the counter-offensive that will uh, begin, I hope, uh, shortly, but we will see. Yeah. So when you speak to your colleagues at the front lines, other than that uh, they obviously have to deal with the monotony and the horrors of war, how is their spirit at the moment, given the fact that they are hearing I think, of the increased support coming from uh, the West? Um, I can say that uh, it's a great boost for our morale. Uh, of course, our guys are very, very tired. Uh, they, for example, the guys in my brigade, they survived four months of constant uh, 
shelling, constant aviation strikes, constant constant missile strikes. Uh, my colleague uh, Max, uh, our second press officer, arrived from uh, Severodonetsk recently, and he said that uh, he survived all kinds of uh, strikes, uh, probably including uh, those that were conducted by Russian fleet. So he said he went through all kinds of fire, uh, like infantry fire, artillery fire, tank fire, aviation strikes and stuff, missiles. Uh, our guys survived four months and they uh, they are very, very tired. That That's what I can say. But uh, uh, th- those new weapons and equipment that we receive from uh, our allies, uh, that's a huge boost for our morale uh, because as soon as uh, armed forces started using uh, those new harvesters hub- from Germany and uh, HIMARS uh, missiles uh, our guys said that uh, yeah they felt that uh, Russians started to hesitate more uh, during their attacks and uh, they-, they were able to uh, perform the uh, defense operations in much more efficient way. Uh, so that's a huge boost. So Axel, do you want to go to audience questions or do you have uh, any further follow-up? I was just about to say the very same thing. Okay, so we're going to go to audience questions. Uh, we want to be really respectful of uh, Operator Starsky's time. So uh, please uh, keep your questions you know, brief to the point. Uh, and Operator Starsky, of course, uh, if you uh, ever uh, have to go, uh, just, just let us know and we'll, we'll wrap it up for you, okay? Uh, so we'll start with, uh, actually, Slava Ukraini. If you had any questions for Operator Starsky, I'll, I'll give you the floor first. Uh, but uh, if not, we'll go to Adrian. Uh, Slava, you got uh, any questions? Thank you. No question. Great uh, reporting, Operator. Thank you. Thank you so much. Adrian. All right. Uh, thank you for being here and being so far in your explanations. Uh, always nice to hear you. Uh, I was uh, wondering a little bit about the Ukrainian Air Force. We speak a lot about a lot of things here, but not that much about Ukraine's Air Force. Uh, I know it's also something uh, where OPSEC is super efficient at. Uh, but I've been noticing lately a little trend uh, that there's more uh, videos of uh, Ukrainian aircraft o- operating close to the lines. Uh, would this indicate more confidence in the Ukrainian Air Force that they can um, actually perform attacks on the line uh, or and also a diminution in the air defense capacity of the Russians? What do you think towards that? Uh, it's a very good question. Actually, I was wondering about it myself uh, because um, we uh, we didn't see such activity uh, recently, I would say. Uh, plus, uh, for example, why we don't see much of uh, footage coming from Bayraktars, even despite the fact that we have huge number of those UAVs uh, at this point. Uh, what it's, it was because uh, during uh, first uh, weeks and months of this invasion, Russians uh, didn't use their anti-air uh, measures efficiently. Uh, they were scattered. Uh, they weren't concentrated uh, as much as they are now, uh, but uh, still we can see uh, our uh, increase in uh, using of our uh, attack aviation. Uh, th- that's a very interesting topic. I think that uh, soon I will have to interview somebody from our Air Force, of course, if uh, they can answer those questions. 
uh, it would it, it will be awesome if uh, uh, we will receive at least some uh, some some answers to that. Seems like we're getting more videos of just uh, the Ukrainian Air Force operating and you know operating in large formations, flying so close to the ground. Uh, it's really really a sight to behold for sure. Uh, yeah, and uh, another thing, of course, is that uh, we uh, I think a bunch of those videos that we see uh they were made uh previously like maybe months ago why because uh we have a habit of not uh, publishing videos right away uh so there there might be some kind of uh, security uh time margin i would say uh so um yeah you mean that, that... you mean like a russian instagram uh, that they left an ammo depot at an expo center and uh, uh, the enemy blew it up, something like that? Yeah, like like uh, that case when they uh, published a video of their 240mm uh, harvester tool pump that was later destroyed for the first time in history, I would say uh, it was destroyed by uh, artillery of my brigade. Right, it was like in real time, it was on the news, right? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Sorry, Adrian, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I had the... Sorry. I was eating. I had a follow-up on a different topic because you mentioned that, um, uh, yes, Ukrainian troops are tired. We hear more and more reports of that. Uh, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, also, psychologically, it's unimaginable what many of them are going through. So I'm uh, wondering how much is Ukrainian command uh, aware and able to alleviate this through rotations, through basically trying to hold the line, but at the same time being able to give some of these troops some downtime so they can recover before they get back into the fight. Do you have any knowledge in this area? Um, I do, but uh, this information is uh, rather secret. Uh, but uh, I can say that uh, that's the reason why uh, we can see our high command uh, visiting front lines from time to time talking to soldiers uh, and uh, we're talking about uh, I would say dangerous areas like in Lysychansk uh, they're visiting our, our troops and uh, talking to them trying to again to boost their morale and uh, remind them that uh, we have nowhere to go from Ukraine this is our land and uh, we all have to fight uh, one way or another so if uh, anyone has any questions for Operator Starsky, you can uh, come on up and uh, raise your hand and we'll get to you. Uh, Axel, do you have any uh, questions you want to ask? Oh, I could engage in this for hours, but then again, at the same time, we've heard um, that uh, Great Britain has offered, or now they call themselves only the UK, but you know what I mean, that our British friends have offered uh, to train every 120 days 10,000 soldiers and we've also heard in, in recent days and we had a couple of our friends uh, be it john be it uh, sir brit and the likes highlighting uh, the immense logistical effort undertaken and already successfully implemented in terms of routing literally 200 soldiers a day um, of different uh, backgrounds tdf as well as uh, uh, corporals ncos and officers as well as whole platoons over and across to train them in various areas, including Salisbury Plains and the likes. How do you rate that commitment by one nation uh, and one leading NATO nation, but one nation to help Ukraine to continue the cycling through and training up of uh, the armed forces? Uh, 
I can say that it's amazing. Uh, all uh, all they do, uh, I mean, our uh, British allies, uh, their support, uh, it's completely amazing. And, uh, and I would say it's unexpected to me personally, because, you know, I remember those times when Ukraine was uh, unknown and unrecognized to the world. So... Yeah, uh, on another hand, of course, I know why uh, our British allies do that, because uh, they uh, suffered from all kinds of Russian uh, hybrid aggression as well. Uh, for example, Salisbury uh, incident, we all remember that, uh, when two idiots arrived uh, to uh, to the UK trying to uh, poison the Skripal family and they uh, ended up poisoning a bunch of other people and uh, they were caught on every single cctv on the street uh and and of course uh, all those uh, cases when russian aviation uh was performing their maneuvers uh, near uh british uh, borders and uh, a lot of them were intercepted so i think they realize this uh this threat uh from russia and uh, uh yeah they they understand that uh, we're in the same boat with them uh so yeah i i can only say that here in ukraine we all highly appreciate their help uh and help of uh, other allies uh like poland for example that was supporting ukraine since 2013 i would say since the times of uh, the revolution of dignity um and uh, all of our allies all around the world uh, we we all appreciate it and uh, we are thankful for uh for all the support starsky i had a question for you um so you used to be a, a bmp commander is that correct uh back in my days i used to command btr3 uh when i was a sergeant uh i was a uh, platoon sergeant in in my company and uh because we are uh, mechanized uh, brigade in, in the National Guard. Uh, every commander, like every sergeant, had to command uh, the BTR. So uh, you guys have gotten a lot of uh, you know NATO equivalent vehicles. Uh, like in terms of what you've seen used, what do you think would be a good like replacement for Soviet uh, infantry fighting vehicles? Um, so like the uh, uh, the Bison, I think, is coming soon. The Canadian Bison. Sorry, I'll. I'll yeah, so uh, I don't know about uh, Soviet-made vehicles because I was I was commanding BTR-3. It was made in Ukraine. It's a completely Ukrainian uh, invention <laughs> vehicle made uh, uh, based on uh, BTR-70, uh, and uh, it was it is uh, a pretty much modern uh, vehicle in terms of modern warfare. Uh, it has uh, this uh, uh, unmanned, uh, remotely controlled uh, combat module and uh, a lot of nice uh, features. But uh, uh, it, I, I would say that it's not really convenient in terms of reloading and stuff. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not very familiar with, uh, uh, with uh, Bisons because uh, I, haven't, like, I, I haven't operated one. I hope I will at some point. Uh, but uh, Ukrainian BTRs are nice. Uh, of course, we had to have more of them 
uh, prior to prior to this invention uh, invasion. Um, but it, it's a very nice vehicle. I, uh, sorry, I can talk hours about BTR3 because I love it so much. It, it has a lot of great features, uh, a lot of uh, uh, weapons, 30mm uh, cannon, automatic cannon, uh, then 7.62mm uh, uh, machine gun and uh, automatic grenade launcher that is capable of eliminating uh, enemy in the trenches as well as laser-guided uh, anti-tank missiles. So it, it's a, a great and awesome vehicle to use. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. And, I mean, you mentioned remote control capability. I'm kind of curious, like the Stugna? Is that kind of what you mean? Or? Uh, yeah, so uh, this uh, combat module has two um, anti-tank laser-guided missiles attached to its side, uh, barrier missile, um, and uh, they have... Uh, tandem warheads that let penetrate uh, the uh, dynamic uh, armor on Russian tanks, and uh, yeah, they're laser guided. So basically, uh, the operator or tank or uh, BTR commander can uh, guide those uh, missiles uh, themselves. Um, and uh, the uh, combat module is uh, remote, remotely controlled. So there's like. Un- Unlike in BTR-70 or 80, uh, there's nobody inside of the combat module. So uh, nobody cares if uh, it's uh, shot by RPG or whatever. Uh, the, the crew will not be hurt by that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's smart to keep the crew alive. Uh, I think Axley had something to add here. Yeah, I was just scanning through the various details of the NATO summit and what the outcomes were this morning. But for the moment, um, uh, people are keeping mum. We're still waiting for uh, an update from the U.S. State Department as to whether the uh, designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terror will be forwarded by Secretary Blinken to the White House, meaning as to whether the White House will want it on its desk. But uh, let's see how that goes. In the meantime, we have John Howard who has joined us, an English friend of ours. John. Thank you. Good morning. Um, Question for Operator Starsky, please. Um, In professional militaries in the West, certainly in the UK, um, the average age of a rifleman in a rifle platoon is is probably 19 years old. I'm assuming that the the age profile, the average age profile in Ukrainian infantry units is higher. Um, I don't know if you could confirm that. And and if you could maybe speak to how that affects the dynamics within the unit when you have a slightly older cohort of soldiers. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for your question, my friend. So uh, I I can say that in my brigade, we have uh, a very young personnel. So the average age in my brigade is uh, 21 to 25 year, years old. And uh, the, the units of the armed forces of Ukraine, they have uh, slightly older personnel. Um, the reason why it happens is because uh, so we have uh, this uh, supply battalion uh, and uh, it consists mainly of conscripts and uh, those conscripts like 20% of them I would say 20 to 30% of those conscripts uh, sign contracts in my brigade 
another uh, reason is that I think that uh, we are uh, very attractive to to young people. Why? Because my brigade, uh, it, it's not like I'm advertising it, but uh, my brigade was uh, among the first uh, Ukrainian military units that were created uh, using uh, modern uh for example, planning process that uh, is used by uh, NATO armies, uh, military decision-making process as well. So we were created uh, with uh, implementation of uh, the experience of uh, Western armies. And uh, it makes us pretty much uh, attractive to, to younger people. Uh, that's why uh, a lot of uh, soldiers in my brigade uh, are uh, very young. Uh, so, uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I cannot uh, answer your, your question regarding the older personnel. Of course, we have some uh, older soldiers uh, who fight since 2014. Um, but uh, in general, we are very, very That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, unfortunately, I have to go uh, because we still have a bunch of duties to, and tasks today. So Absolutely. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you and so much for, for your answers. Sorry if uh, I couldn't, couldn't answer a bunch of them, uh, but I will learn and answer them next time. Come back thank anytime. So much. One, yeah, cool. one last question. How, how's yeah. food? Uh, so he feels great. Uh, he feels great. Um, he was uh, very upset because... Uh, I don't publish his pictures uh, on my uh, Instagram, but I don't do that on purpose because I don't want him to steal all of my female audience. Uh, but other than that, he's fine. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Cersei. Stop back anytime. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Well, that that was a pleasant surprise. Hi, everybody. Well, that's the never-ending Walter Report 24-7, open for our friends, colleagues, and those who have opinions to voice and questions to ask. That's right. Now, uh, Slava, I think you had something to say before uh, Strasky came up, so I'll let you go ahead. Slava Ukraini, Heroem Slava. So, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I just woke up as a usual day in Ukraine, on the west of Ukraine, start reading the news. Of course, the news about the Odessa, 20 dead, 19, 20 dead uh, of the missiles strike, in the Odessa region, it is bad. I got angry, but now I reading some article, and it is absolutely make me absolutely angry. So a short article I will try to read. I translate it, so it will be more understandable for you all. If you want, you can stop me. So picture how how this is a picture. What is this war about? What this war war about? So, families of the occupiers move from the deep deep Russia to the Zaporizhia. They live in the apartments of the Ukrainians. Some of the occupiers were so filled with the with the belief that they occupied territories of Kherson Oblast and Zaporizhia would remain under Russian control, that they began to move their families to quiet cities. Horde families move into well-maintained apartments with expensive appliances. As representatives of the partisan movement reported to Channel 24, it is article from Channel 24, a large resettlement of Buryats has been taking place in Melitopol, Berdyansk, and Energodar since mid-June 
Almost every day, several families of the Russian servicemen come to the city with the uh, occupiers consider peaceful. Yakuts, Burats, as well as the uh, representatives of the other nationalities who live in the barracks in the Far East in Russia are arriving in Ukrainian cities with the hope of, of permanent residence. So, a uh, little more. Dirty children of all and women are delighted with the toilets. Uninvited guests, guests uh, settle mostly in the new buildings in, in apartments where wealthy people lived before the full-scale invasion. Before squeezing, the invaders arrange for the women to inspect the premises. They break down the doors in different apartments and together they choose the housing where their family will settle. At the same time, Burats, Yakuts, drag among, brag among themselves about the conditions in which their children will live from now on and even send photo and video videos to, of them sitting on toilets to their relatives in the Russia. The invaders also boast that they take uh, that they take shower every two three days even though they wash at home only once a week the wife of the occupiers uh, who spend their whole lives in the yurts and went to the river to wash are delighted with the new living condition they absolutely love sleeping on clean sheets and using microwaves at the time, the descendants of the occupiers quickly adapt to the move, uh, treating the local residents that they dead that they uh, that they dead will kill them all, and the the fate if yards of entrance or even in the presence of their uh, parents. Of course, none of the Russians see anything wrong with this behavior. So, this is a picture of what is happening. Occupiers taking, taking the territory of the Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians who flee to the uh, Ukrainian territory and just uh, these Yakuts and other poor Russians moving to Ukraine to make living in Ukraine. So this is a picture I wanted to uh, share with you how it looks, uh, this war. So I am t totally angry with this, so I wanted to share. Thank you. Thank you very much, Slava. And uh, if anyone has any uh, questions for Slava's update, uh, just uh, come on up and you can probably raise your hand and I'm sure he'll be happy to answer you. So I just to add, so this war cannot be peaceful and in negotiations. These animals just wanted to take and live in Ukraine with, with the Russian mirror. So it Ukrainians makes really angry and no peace uh, with these animals. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, no peace, no negotiation until uh, every every inch of Ukrainian territory is liberated. I think that's the only solution here. Any any solution short of that is just going to result in uh, further aggression from Russia in the future. Absolutely. Well, we got a little bit of a lull here, folks, so I'm just going to uh, remind everyone that uh, the Waltz Report is commercial-free. We provide a lot of expert analysis by experts who, who donate their time to the Waltz Report, and uh, they provide lots of great analysis on important topics for all of us.